just to make you aware, I've been doing this series now for about a year out of James, and we've reached James chapter 2, and we're on verse 21. Uh, and we're going to look at the last two weeks, I've been looking at the theme of faith and works. And the first message I preached was called Putting Grace to Work. We save by grace, certainly. There's, we don't, we come to the cross without our works at all. But then how do we put faith into action, basically? The second week, I, last week, last time I preached, I looked at faith and works and how they go together. And I'm going to continue today along that theme. And I'm talking about today becoming friends of God. Becoming friends of God. How many of you would like the accolades that Abraham received that he was called a friend of God? I would love that accolade over my life. Anthony is a friend of God. Uh, uh, whoever else is a friend of God. That uh, would be a wonderful accolade to have over your life. And uh, I want to encourage you this morning that God wants that to be possible. It is possible through the cross, but I believe God calls us to a deeper intimacy with Him that enables us to be called friends of God. And I want to look at that theme this morning. So James chapter 2, verse 21 says this, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, there's old James being polite again with these Jewish Christians. You foolish people, that faith apart from works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture says, was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, counted, it, counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, if you've been in this church for any length of time, that phrase might just... Um, Spark something in your heart. How is it possible that we are justified by freely by faith and by grace? And now James is saying that we are justified by works. How can we make sense of this? Well, last week we had a look at James uh, trying to bring these people's attention to the fact that he was most concerned that the, of the, about the influence that they had on other people. He says, it's great that you are people of faith. It's great that you understand grace. It's you, uh, he, he talks about the perfect law of liberty. He says, it's great you understand that. And he encourages them in, in, in the perfect law of liberty and all that. And then he uses these three quite strong and negative examples. And he says, actually, if your faith is not active in your life, Faith without works is dead. If it is not active, it is dead. And he said, remember, three, three examples from uh, the first. He says, faith, dead faith is like a corpse. And uh, that word comes from Romans 6.11, where, where Paul encourages us, says, you are dead to sin, like a corpse. You are dead to sin, but you are made alive in Christ. That's the same word used. Faith without works is dead. It's like a corpse. It's no use to anybody. It's not any use to yourself. It's not any use to your friends, your family, to, to anyone who is unsaved. If your faith is not active, it is like a corpse. That's the first slap he gives them, right? The second slap he gives them, he says, actually, it's possible to be a lazy believer. 
And that was verse 18, and we looked at that. He said, don't be lazy believers. Don't make excuses for yourself. Don't say, oh, you're gifted. You're much more practically gifted than I am. It's your gift to be practical. It's my gift just to have faith. Uh Uh-uh. He says, no, no, no. He says, he won't let us get away with that. He says, no, show me your faith, and I will show you my faith by what I do. In a practical way, I will show you my faith. I will demonstrate it to you. And then the third point he makes, which is for me was the worst one, he says, actually, inactive faith, unbelieving faith, is the same as a believing demon. That's what he says in verse 19. He said, even the demons believe in, in God, and they have this intellectual assent that there is God, and they are cerebral, they understand, and it says, even it touches their emotions, and they shiver and they shake with terror, but it doesn't cause them to do anything. And as such, they are still useless for the kingdom. And so he says, don't be that kind of believer. Don't be a lazy believer. Don't be an inactive believer. Don't be a believer that has the same faith as demons do, which is intellectual assent, and it doesn't cause you to activate in your life and do anything. He says, that kind of faith is useless. Three slaps. Fortunately today... He gets a little bit more positive with us, James. And he shows us something of the glory that is possible in becoming a friend of God. John Calvin said three things. John Calvin was a, the great reformer, you know. He said, the true church must demonstrate three things. And these are the three things that Calvin said. He said, first, the true church is where the word of God is preached. That's how you know the church is true. The word of God is preached there. Secondly, he said, the true church is where sacraments are administered. In other words, the breaking of bread and baptism, the sacraments, they are practiced. That's how you know a church is true. And thirdly, he said, it's where discipline is exercised, where our lives are submitted to each other and the Word of God can come and where there's sin, it's dealt with. That's the true church. That's how you know. There's three. And I want to say I agree with Calvin, but I don't think he goes far enough. I think there should be a fourth thing that is added for the true church. There must be people coming to Christ in the true church. The true church is essentially evangelistic. If our lives are not being changed and Christ is not being glorified and people are not coming to him, then I don't know if it is the true church. If people are coming to a social club, it's not the true church. We are converted to Christ. We are converted to his community, to the church, the group of believers, and we are converted to the cause of Christ, which is to be a blessing to all the nations of the world and to see many come to him. Abraham in advance. Galatians tells us, receive the gospel in Genesis. And that was the gospel that he received. Through your seed, many will be blessed. Yes? And so, I want to encourage you. That's what, those, what the Jews that, 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 um, that uh, James is running to, that's what they'd forgotten. And that's what I tried to, to talk to you about last week. They'd forgotten. They thought the most important thing was that they were saved. And it is the most important thing. It is absolutely the foundation of everything, that we come to Christ, we come to the cross without works, we are saved by grace and faith alone. That, that's what they, they, um, they knew. But James needed to remind them, and he said, in, verse, in fact, in verse 25 of chapter 1, he was already hinting it, and he said this, the one who looks into the perfect law of freedom, the one who looks into the grace of God, who looks at the cross and forgets and... Uh, and um, it looks into the perfect law of liberty and perseveres, being a hearer, 
not being a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so James feels it's necessary still to remind these believers that the most important thing is that they are still active in their faith. One of the most important things. The most important thing is that we are saved by grace. Absolutely. But remember, I said to use that phrase of RTs, Christianity first makes us fit for heaven, and then it makes us fit for earth. We live here until we go be with Jesus. And so Christianity is essentially evangelistic. That's what we want to do. We want to see people converted. It is evangelistic. All right? So I want to talk a little bit about obedience this morning and becoming friends of God. Why is obedience so important? Well, simply because obedience threatens someone. Obedience threatens the devil. The devil does not care. He's not threatened by what we believe. He's not threatened by good theology. He's not threatened if you have a perfect understanding of the Holy Spirit. He's not threatened by that. What the devil is threatened about with is when your belief becomes activated in your life and you start doing something, then he is threatened. When you actually start praying for the sick, then he is threatened. When you actually start living out in a practical way what is in your head, when you start living it out in your heart, when your life, when your character, when your conversation, when what people see in you, when your attitudes are so different from everybody else that people have to say, what is it with you? That threatens the devil. That's why he doesn't like it when we are obedient. That's why he tries to stop us being obedient. He'll do everything he can to distract us from actually acting on what the Word of God is telling us. Everything. And what does Revelation 12 said? We, uh, someone quoted it a couple of weeks ago. They overcame him, the devil, by the blood of the Lamb, first of all. Then, the word of their testimony, what God was doing in their life and what they were acting upon. And it says, thirdly, they didn't love their lives unto death. The devil is threatened when you start obeying. It's all very well to believe that you need to set your alarm clock in the morning and uh, get up at six to pray. It's good to believe that. It doesn't threaten the devil in the least until you actually get out of bed and start reading and praying. Because you activate, then you, know, you might say to me, well, I've done that and everything seems to go wrong when I, when I get up early in the morning. Of course it is. Why? Because the devil doesn't like it. I want to say to you, I think there's too much of a passive attitude in the church of Jesus. It is so nauseating. You know what most people do? Most people will say, if the door doesn't open to me, it can't be God. Yeah? What does Paul say? Paul says to the Thessalonian church, 1 Thessalonians 2.18, I wanted to come to you, but I could not. Because the devil hindered me. It's different. You hear what I'm saying? It's much more active. It's like, I wanted to do this, and it wasn't God that was stopping me. It was the devil that was stopping me. Yes? But far too many of us as Christians uh, have this theology of providential hindrance. In other words, if God must open the door. If he doesn't open the door, it's the devil. I don't know if that's always the case. I think sometimes we have to rise up and smack the door until it opens. Active faith. You know why church community and attendance on Sundays in many churches has become so, such a low priority in people's lives? 
Because every hindrance is seen as somehow being allowed by God. And I want to say to you, one of the, not even subtle anymore, one of the most uh, obvious enemies of the proclamation of the gospel in this nation right now is recreation. Recreation is seen as a God. I want to encourage you to get some gumption in your life and some passion in your life and say, I will resist that and I will stand for something. Oh, no, I can't. My kids are going to suffer. Your kids won't suffer. What you're teaching your kids is that the most important thing in their lives is recreation. No, my friend, the most important thing in their life is Jesus Christ. And that's what you're training them in. And I am passionate about it, and I don't apologize for that comment. I believe that with all of my heart. Your obedience matters. Your obedience as a believer is absolutely vital. And then, after slapping us around the head, James offers us this beautiful example of what can be. He speaks about Abraham. He says, Abraham was God's friend. He's mo- it was God's friend. He's moving into a much more positive image now. And he says that we can actually, although we are sons, although we are saved, we can win God's approval in a way in our lives. We can win the friendship of God. Yes, you are saved. Yes, you are a son. You are absolutely eternally assured of that. But he's saying something different with Abraham. Abraham was called a friend of God. I want to go back to the image. It's Helen's birthday today. Congratulations, my darling, 44. And it's also, currently it's your birthday sometime, isn't it? This week? Yes, happy birthday. And happy birthday to, to um, anyone else who's having a birthday this week. But I want to go back to that image that I used yesterday, last week. I am married to Helen. It's a done deal. Not going to ever get divorced, ever. It does not mean I have a good relationship with her. A good relationship you have to work at. You have to work through all sorts of things. You have to, there's intimacy that needs to happen. You've got to get over yourself and your selfishness and you've got to get over your arguments and all that stuff. And then you have a good relationship. And I said to you last week, it is possible to be saved and to have a bad relationship with Jesus, lacking intimacy, lacking any knowledge of Him, simply saved in a cerebral way. I understand the gospel, but it doesn't move me in my heart. It's possible. And I'm telling you, I'm saying to you, this is what James is encouraging us in. He's encouraging us to say, I want you to move from that place of being saved to also living a life that you can be called a friend of God. It's not the same thing. And so we have to reconcile two verses, the first couple of verses. Why does he use this language? Why does he confuse the thing and say, Abraham was justified by works. It really irritates me. Why does he say that? Well, there's a good reason. And I want to say to you this morning that it doesn't in any way negate what Paul is saying as the great theologian of the gospel, the great theologian of grace. In fact, I don't think it it conflicts at all. How do we understand this verse then? That Abraham was justified, saved by his works. And this is the verse that actually caused Luther to say this is an epistle of straw. and He dismissed this book. Remember this. James is the first book that is written to the Christian church. It is before Paul has even written any of, of, uh, of, of his theology. So it's impossible that James is trying to correct Paul in any way or bring another gospel because actually it's way before. It's at least 50 years before what Paul wrote. In fact, what Paul wrote 
was only understood, started to be clearly understood in the 4th and 5th centuries after Augustine came, the late 4th century and early 5th century, most of the early church fathers didn't even quote Paul, most in the first couple of hundred years. There were only very, very few people that understood and realized what Paul was actually saying, that it was going to be life-changing and it would change the way the gospel is seen and preached forever. Only very few people saw that. But one thing is clear, and I want to say this to you. I believe the Bible is the infallible, infallible Word of God to us. Yes? All of the Bible. I believe what Paul says in the doctrine of grace that he, and justification that he preached is God's Word to us. And I believe what James is saying here is God's Word to us. Absolutely. And I don't believe they contradict each other, and I'm going to show you that this morning. I believe what Paul's and James are, are, are writing about are two different events in the same man's life, and the way that they use justify doesn't mean the same, it's not the same thing. Remember, I've said this to you before, that the themes of the New Testament are tight, and sometimes the language is loose, and you have to understand the language to see what the guy is saying. All right? And he has a very obvious example. Both the teaching of Paul and the teaching of James must be heard by the Christian church. I wanna, I'm doing all I can, and all the guys that are preaching in this church, we are trying to root you in the simple fact that your salvation is eternally secure. That when you come to Christ, you, you know Him, and that can never be taken away from you. Whether you behave well or behave badly, you don't lose your salvation. I hope every single one of you knows that as becoming more and more rooted in your life in that thing. But it's also vital that what we've got to take what James says, faith without works is dead. How do we reconcile that? The writer of the Hebrew says the same thing. If we don't understand what James is saying, we will end up unfulfilled, lazy believers who count for nothing for the kingdom. I was thinking about this in the shower. Why does, why does, why does Paul have to say to some ladies in the church, don't go being a busybody. Don't go around meddling in other people's lives. Don't go interfering in people's lives. Don't speak and cause trouble in families. Why does he have to say that? You know why he has to say that? It's because when you lose sight of the gospel, when you no longer be motivating, you're no longer in your life being motivated by Jesus, ladies, and you are giving yourself in your home, and you're giving yourself to other people, and you are trying to share the gospel with others, when you lose sight of that, all that energy, it goes into meddling in other people's lives. And I'm not just speaking on the ladies, it's the same with the men. You hear what I'm saying? No, no, Paul is saying, keep, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus, 2 Timothy 2 verse 8. Remember Jesus, who was crucified, the, 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 the descendant of David. Remember Jesus, who is the, the gospel that I preach. That, that's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2. I want to encourage you, give yourself to good works in your life. Good works is sharing the gospel. Good works is giving yourself away for other people. Then you won't fall into being a meddler. Yes? Okay. So both Paul's teaching and James' teaching must be heard and understood by the church. This is the key. James is talking about two different events in the life of Abraham, okay? In, and these two events are 25 years apart. 25 years apart, okay? When James says that Abraham is justified by works, when he says he offers up his son in obedience to what God has told him to do, that is 25 years after... 
when he has been saved in the way that Paul would say you are saved. How do I know that? Well, it's very simple. We just need to read Genesis, read the text. In Romans 3.28, when Paul says, I hold to this, that we are justified, we are saved by faith alone apart from works. He's referring to one event in, 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 in Abraham's life. He's referring to Genesis 15.6. And if you read Genesis 15.6, it's that point in Genesis where... Um, uh, Abraham has left Haran and he's been walking with his family and he's walking with Lot and they decide to live in this certain place and then one day God speaks to him and he says, look at the stars of the sky and Abraham looks up at the stars of the sky and God says to him, he says, uh, your descendants are going to become as numerous as the stars in the sky and verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 6 says this, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was saved right then. He was saved. And so, he starts to walk with God. Now, he's not a pagan anymore. Remember, he was a sun-worshipping pagan. He wasn't even looking for God, and God found him. And now he starts walking with God. And so, as he walks with God, we read in um, chapter... That's about, when he gets saved, by the way, he's about 75 years old. 75 years old, he gets saved. Genesis 12. Genesis 15, he's about 80 years old. Genesis 17... When the promise comes to him that he's going to have a son, and he laughs, he says, he says to God, you must be joking. My wife, she's in, love, she's in her 90s. It's impossible for her to have a baby. Remember that? Genesis 17. He's about 99 years old. Right? 99 years old. Guys, still hope, eh? 99 years old. Oh, by the way, Martin and Hannah, congratulations. They are expecting their first baby. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Right? And then, when the baby is born, Abraham is about a hundred years old. A hundred years old. And we know that from Romans 4.19. Paul says he's about a hundred years old. And when he offers up his son in Genesis 22, he's now a teenager. Isaac has grown up and he's now a teenager. If you do the maths, it's about 25 to 30 years between when Abraham is saved, as Paul says we are saved, and to when he offers up his son Isaac, and in the way that James says, he says, and his work saved him. How do we reconcile those two? Well, it's, it's like this. The point that James is making when he uses the word justification has got nothing to do with the initial receiving of salvation that Paul speaks about. What the word says, and it's, it's clear in the ESV translation, it says that what, what, Paul, uh, what uh, James uh, is talking about is when Isaac is offered up and Abraham has obeyed, what he does completes, fulfills what had initially happened 25 years ago. You understand? I've been sa- I was saved as a teenager. I'm now 48. It's about 30 years ago. I was definitely saved then. Absolutely saved. And then I began to walk with God. And I'm living with God, and I'm growing, and I'm changing, hopefully. And I'm, I'm getting to know Him a bit better. And now it should be possible to say of me, He is saved. His works justify Him. You can see from His life that He's saved. That's what James is saying. You get me? not saying we saved by works. He's saying, no, 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 no. On the evidence of his life, on the evidence of 25 years of walking with God, listening, he's, so, he's, he's got the point where he so obeys God that even he can offer up his son and in his works justify him. I want to say to you, there is a second justification that comes. 
Not to save us, but to complete what God has already done in our lives. You, 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 you understand what I'm saying? You might say, well, this is, uh, you know, this is a little bit intellectual or a little bit... Um, but for me, it's, 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 it's vital. Because what James is talking about, he's not talking about a passive adherence to faith. He's talking about an active life that confirms what God has done in you. Saying, don't lose sight of that. When we saved, initially, it is passive, isn't it? We do nothing. We simply believe on the cross, and uh, we are dead to sin, and then we are made alive in Christ. That's what the Word says, Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Yep, all on the same page. Romans six 11, you're dead to sin like a corpse to sin, you're made alive in Christ. If you are made alive in Christ, you start doing stuff for Jesus. There are, there are believing works that start to flow of your life. There are works of faith. And that so pleases God that your relationship with Him becomes sweeter and sweeter. And at a point, just like Abraham, God smiles on your integrity and He says, this is my friend. Look at my friend. Look how He loves me. Not that I'm trying to get saved. No, that's settled. But because I, 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 I love God, I do stuff for Him. You know what? It might be, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the next example that, um, that James talked about is Rahab the prostitute. And for Abraham, it was about 25 or 30 years apart. Rahab the prostitute, for her, it was very quick. Her works quickly showed that she was saved. Why? Because she, she let the spies down and they, they got away. And so she, she, she kind of demonstrated it very quickly. It doesn't have to be 25 years. All I'm saying to you is that our works need to show something of what God has done in our lives. And it justifies us. It says, yes, yes, there you can see he's saved. So I want to encourage you. Let's start showing love and mercy to others immediately. <laughs> the same mercy that we've received. Uh, this, the, let's show love and mercy to those who need the gospel. Let's walk secure in our salvation. That's settled. But looks, I want to encourage you that we look also for a great reward, a greater reward that is coming it's through our obedience, through the works that we live in our lives. Our faith is completed, it's fulfilled, and that we too might be called friends of God. Faith leads to obedience. That's what I'm trying to say. Faith, grace, enables us to live lives of obedience. And that's what Genesis 15, 6 tells us. Faith first, Abraham is saved. Obedience second. It's always in that order. Always in that order. Uh, when it comes, comes to the vocabulary of salvation, James uses the word, the perfect law of freedom. Paul says the same thing in a different way. He talks about God's righteousness being fulfilled. He talks about God's justice being satisfied. It's the same thing. It's just a different vocabulary. It's different words. And the point that James is making loud and clear to every believer, obedience must follow faith. Obedience comes straight after faith. And you see, this is the problem. This is the problem that church leaders face, anyone faces who's trying to count for God in the kingdom. If you preach the doing, if you preach we must be active in our faith before people are rooted in a secure knowledge of their salvation. You know what it does to them? They become driven people. And they never, they get on this treadmill because they're trying to, they don't understand, that they don't, it's not their works that save them. 
It's the faith that they have that saves them. What flows out of their life is work that comes from love and obedience. It's a different motivation. If you want to live a driven, unhappy, unjoyful life, then do the opposite of what I'm saying. Believe that your works save you, because then, then you are, that's Catholic, actually, that's a Catholic doctrine. And then your whole life, you are driven to do works in the hope that one day you might be saved. Man, I don't want to live there. Not about you, I don't want to live there. I want to know I am saved. Boom. Regardless of what I do, I believe that's what the Bible teaches. And of course, because I am saved, because I'm alive to Christ, there are going to be some good works that joyfully flow out of my life in a relaxed, happy way, and I give myself away in every opportunity, and that is just the evidence that actually there's a transaction that's happened already inside of my heart. Joyful, happy, relaxed, undriven life. I want to live like that. So, can I just conclude then? by talking about becoming friends of God. Because that really is the main point of what I'm trying to say. When we are saved, we are assured of our sonship. I've called you sons and daughters. We are assured in that sense, we are assured that we are friends of God. What I'm saying to you this morning is that James says God also extends an invitation to us for deeper intimacy and deeper friendship that comes as we obey God then our faith is no longer corpse-like. We are no longer lazy. No, no, we are active, joyful, happy Christians responding to God because He loves us. So, looking at the life of Abraham, I want to just say two things that demonstrate what true friendship with God is. Two things. You can possibly say many more, but um, two things that the story of Abraham show us. Genuine friendship with God always shows loyalty in the, faith of, in the face of disloyalty. What do I mean by this? Well, Abraham could not possibly have known why God was asking him to offer up his son Isaac. He could not possibly have known. Isaac was his natural son. Isaac was also the child of the promise. God's promise to him that he would be a blessing to the nations of the world. And God must have appeared to be being disloyal to, to, to Abraham when he says to him, I want you to offer up my son. He could not possibly have understood. It could not have made, he must have grappled. It could not have made perfect sense to him. But the writer of the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11, 9, 10, that Abraham was so convinced of God's goodness to him and what God was asking him to do that he believed in his heart that even if he killed his son, God would resurrect him from the dead and give him back to him. That's how sure he was of God's word to him. Daniel 3.17, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you know the story well. They couldn't possibly have known the full thing of what was going on. But they responded to those people and they said this, our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to you. That's a friend of God. What about the story of Polycarp? Polycarp was an amazing man in the second century. As he was being tied to the stake to be burned, the guy whispered to him and said, all you have to do is pray to Caesar. That's all you have to do. Just compromise now. Pray to Caesar and deny your Lord. And it's written for all of history to read. Polycarp responds. He says, 86 years I have served my Lord. He's done me no wrong. 
Why would I deny him now? That is a friend of God. Tied to this stake, about to be burned, he says, I don't understand the fullness of what is happening, but God is faithful and he's always been faithful to me and my life will count for something and he trusts God to the end. That's genuine friendship with God. In the face of everything that you don't understand, you keep on trusting him loyally, keep on believing, keep on working, walking, keep on persevering. Second thing I want to say, I believe Abraham teaches us is that true friendship accepts the deepest secrets of other people. The deepest secrets of other people. See, God was longing to share with someone a deep secret that he had. You read the Old Testament and the book of Genesis in particular, God has this longing to, ha- to have a people that he can call his own, a people that are set apart for him, a people that are his. And there's this longing in God's heart to have a people to call his own. And so he whispers to Abraham, and he says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. And through your seed, through your seed, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. He's saying to Abraham, I'm sharing my secret with you. You're going to become part of my called out people. But when he promises Abraham in in chapter 15 of Genesis, he promises him, he says, your seed will become a blessing to the nations. Your seed will become as numerous as the stars in the sky. And once Isaac is born, God also knows that because Abraham is human, he's going to think the seed is going to be a natural process. It's going to be a natural process of procreation. I just need to go around having babies, and that's how God is going to fulfill his promise to me. Abraham. That's what he's thinking. He's thinking it's going to be a natural progression of procreation to produce descendants. But God whispers to Abraham again, because you haven't got the full picture, Abraham. My people are not going to be a natural people. My people are going to be a people of faith. A people of faith. And you know how I'm going to get you to understand that? You're going to offer up your son, Isaac, to me. The natural seed is going to die, and I'm going to give back to you supernatural seed. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews tells us. It says that actually, as he was prepared to kill him, and you know the story, he doesn't end up killing him. It says, the writer of the Hebrews says, that actually Isaac was given back to Abraham, but in a different form. In other words, he's no, 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 no longer the seed of a natural promise. He's the seed of a supernatural promise of faith. That through you, through your line, through the line of faith, for everyone who believes, I will make you a blessing to the nations of the world. Is that not incredible? No? <laughs> well, I'm very excited. And if you look at the language, God is so delighted with Abraham, so happy with Abraham's obedience that he can't conceal it anymore. And he says this, by myself I have sworn. He kind of repeats in a different way the promise that he made before. He says, by myself I have sworn. In other words, that's as good as it gets for God. He cannot swear by anything higher than himself. He swears by himself. He says, I promise you because I am who I am. I am God. And I promise you irrevocably because you've done this. And you've not withheld your son from me. I will surely bless you. I will surely bless you. And I will multiply your offspring. And there's this amazing, 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 joyful declaration by God. He can't conceal his delight about what Abraham has done. You know, Jesus, he did the same. John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants. 
But I call you friends, because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. Absolutely, stunningly beautiful. I want to say to you this morning, it's possible to become a friend of God. It's an incredible privilege that we become friends of God. Our sh- there's an, a, a legal assurance that we are His sons, that we are His friends, but there's a call on God's heart for all of us. He invites us to come and be friends. He invites us to intimacy. He invites us into obedience. He never whips you into obedience. He invites you to be obedient. He says, come and walk with me. He's never twists your arm. He just says, come and walk with me. Come and walk by my spirit. Hear my voice. Just be obedient. And you know what? Our relationship will become so sweet that I will smile on you one day and say, there's a man of integrity. He walks what he believes. He's my friend. And that's why James ends and he says, so you see, That a man is justified by his works and not by faith alone. That's what he's trying to say. There's an evidence of the many, 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 many years of walking faithfully with God that what we initially experienced is true. Well, you might feel like giving up when the going gets tough. What is old? uh, I grew up in the 80s. What was that guy's name? Going gets tough, tough get going. What is it? Ed, Billy Ocean. There's the one. He also grew up in the 80s, Wayne. Maybe you feel like just giving up. I want to encourage you as we read, you know, Hebrews 11, the great chapter of faith, where you just see all those people are standing and applauding us as we as we walk this life. I want to I want to remind you above all that Jesus is applauding you, and Jesus wants to say over you, "There's my friend." Look how he or she perseveres. Look how they love, they love me. Look how they're putting one step in front of the other. They don't fully understand what's going on, but hey, they love me. It's not burdensome for, to, for them to do that. They love me. They're my friends. Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That is such a joyful verse for me. You don't have to know the details of everything. God is faithful. He works it out. You just get on. Through faith and patience, we inherit the promises of God. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't know the assurance that God is your Father, that you are His Son, that you are His friend. Well, the Bible says that that's the most important decision, that what you have to do is believe in your heart that what He says is true, You confess with your mouth, and in that moment you are saved. And that's what I've been talking about this morning. You are legally saved in the eyes of God. His anger has been satisfied. His righteousness is imputed to you, and that's you you receive that, and that's a done deal. What I'm saying to you this morning, if you know that, I want to rejoice with you, but I want to say to you that God invites all of us to a deeper walk with Him, a deeper communion with Him, a deeper and more intimate relationship with Him that comes through us joyfully obeying Him. This is not heavy. Jesus said, my burden is light. It's simply as we walk by the Spirit and we hear His voice and we just respond to that, that we begin to walk by the Spirit. And He invites us to that. It's a joyful thing. It's a happy thing. And I want to say to you, there's great reward for us here on earth and there's also great reward for us in heaven one day as we joyfully obey Him. So I want, to, I want to ask you, will you trust Him with your life? 
Will you walk with Him with your life? Will you, will you start, give yourself to joyfully obeying Him that He can start to reveal the secrets of His heart to you and that we can all enjoy that accolade over our lives? There's Colin, my friend. There's Wayne, my friend. There's Hannah, my friend. Yes, this is the invitation of God to us. And he wants us to be friends. We are saved, absolutely. But there's a joyful obedience that he's calling us to that transforms our lives, will touch our families, will touch our friends, will touch every single person. And they will know something of God's grace because of our lives and us transforming us. Amen. God bless you.